And here we are, Cinema Squabble, episode 96. Adam Gerke, Steve Reeder, Sarah Michelle Fetters. We are a number of Seattle's film critics. We gather in theaters on a weekly basis, and we gather in a, in a radio studio on a semi, I'll call it a bi-weekly basis almost, to talk about film, to talk about the, the various different theater events and things happening around the Seattle area and what might be happening in your neighborhood. We bring it to you in this podcast. We call it Cinema Squabble. And this is kind of the the intermind, the workings of film critics. Uh, so, Sarah, Steve, here we are. We're in the midst of awards season. We with are our inner minds, yeah, no, and, and, uh, and we've also got some film to talk about. Yeah, uh, it's like it's award season, yet it's also January when we get a lot of just yeah. Usually, it could silliness. be Drevel, it could be Drek, it could be the bottom of the barrel, but it could be holdovers. Is sometimes exactly it could exactly. be holdovers. So it could, let's, be, it could be the Oscar frontrunner. Uh, that it could, couldn't it? And let's begin with what that might be. I believe that would be 1917, Steve. It would. Thank you for playing to the prejudices of my inner mind. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite movies of the year, which also happens to be my favorite historical subject of all time, The First World War. Thank you, Sam Mendes, the director and co-screenwriter of this World War I set picture, April 1917 at the front in Belgium. A general, a British general, played by Colin Firth, dispatches a pair of lance corporals portrayed by George Mackay and Dean Charles Chapman to go behind enemy lines and warn many of their fellow soldiers, including the brother of one of them, that they are in mortal danger of uh, defeat and uh, uh, obliteration by German forces at this relatively late date in the war. Sam Mendes has described this as more of a tick-tock thriller mm. than a war picture. It's basically both. He's basically uh, melding a number of genres here. He also wants to leave the impression of a one-shot real-time experience for his audience, working with one of the world's most brilliant and consistently over the years underrated cinematographers in Roger Deakins. Roger Deakins! Who yes. would also <laughs> appear to be, thank goodness, the front-runner again this year to claim the Oscar. It is a brilliantly shot and painstakingly made film. The actors had to rehearse for six months wow. before they did anything. Because think about it. If you're doing this in real time yeah. with a sense of progression, always moving forward, always going somewhere else, you have to have constant, re. Uh, what, what am I trying to say, renewal of sets. Yeah. You never go to the same place twice, so every set has to be different. And the sets can't be constructed until you have the timing down. And the timing can't be gotten until you have the lighting and cinematography and framing down. Yeah. And so it's a picture that manages to, I think, neatly bridge the epic, the heroic, the grand, with a very intimate, deeply personal kind of storytelling. As we meet these characters, uh, it's an extraordinary cast. Uh, Mark Strong is in there. Uh, Andrew Scott is in there. Benedict Cumberbatch is in there. Yeah. It's a who's who of British male actors in this film. But it's a remarkable achievement. It tells its story exceedingly well. It's literate. It's emotional. It's passionate. It has all of the technical uh, kind of wizardry that inspires us and keeps us engaged with the story all the way along. It's yet another example of a picture. May I liken it to Ford v. Ferrari? Ferrari. You don't have to be a fan of auto racing to love Ford v. Ferrari. You don't have to be an aficionado of war pictures to appreciate what Mendes and his team have done here. Uh, as noted, one of my favorites of the year, and I'm glad it finally got wide release here in the month of January. Yeah, and I think what you're also uh, really tipping into, Steve, is you don't need to know much about World War One. No. Which, uh, so often we've seen World War II, we've seen Vietnam, we've even seen the Korean War in a lot of films in mo modern day 
War, World War One has only just more recently, to my mind, gotten more play or more attention. Well, technically, uh, there's been 35 films that released since the beginning of the century on World War One. Yeah, but in, you compare that to how many on World War Two? Well, sure, but you know, I'm just saying it's not as few as people seem to think it is. Right. But of the ones that actually carry weight, They Shall Die Young and All this. Quiet on the Western Front. Right. Well, I mean, no, I mean Wonder Woman. Mm, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. That, is, that, is, that is going to be the most popular and widely seen World War One movie probably of all time. Okay. So, um, And it also deals with No Man's Land and trench warfare. Yes. True. My point is, I mean, like, of, sure. of ones that are, can I dare say, based in reality technic- of some sort. Technically, like, last year you also had Tolkien. <sighs> okay. Which was significantly about World War One, and the people that love it... Love it. Sure. My point. The point I'm still driving <laughs> at is that films that actually delve into World War One in depth to the point. I mean, we've seen so much on World sure. War Two. Uh, think back to everything that came out. What two, three years yeah, ago? I, I'm not disagreeing with you. you. Know. I'm just saying that th- there's been a, there have been more there have been films that have actually dove further in depth into World War One than this one does. This one doesn't actually dive that in depthly into World War One. It wants to make you feel like you're a soldier on the ground yes. fighting that trench warfare. Yes, I think it's extraordinary. I think it's a killer movie. It just missed my top ten. I think Dinkins is going to win his second Oscar in a row, and he should. Um, I have no problem whatsoever with it being probably the Oscar frontrunner, although this year it's hard to tell. Yeah. I have no question issues with any of that, but I don't think anybody is going to come away from this film feeling like they learned a great deal about the ins and outs and whys and hows and everything's about World War One. Mm. And, and just one additional asterisk with regard to my inner mind, yeah. I can tell you that some of the particulars about the battles yeah. and the placement of troops here and where the lines were at this point in World War One, April of 1917... Are not entirely accurate. I was get, that that yeah. has been dramatized sure. as well. Sure. And there, there was that question in my mind, kind of going, I wonder how much of this is actually true. How, how close were to the Germans actually pulling out here at this point, this point? And although we've overlooked one crucial point, yeah. Mendes based this story uh, and yes. his screenplay on the experience of his own grandfather during right. the war. Uh, that, but that experiences, 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 yes. There's, there, it's, Plural. So, I mean, yes. he took multiple yes. experiences from his grandfather yeah. and melded them into so, this one So that story. is the kind of reality we're yeah. talking yeah. about yeah. here. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, based based on reality, but, or in a, sure. a, in a real world, uh, but you're fictionalized. No, it, it, is, just, it is a ticking clock yeah. thriller where, you know, you have to get to a certain place before a certain time or everybody's going to die. I am continuously impressed with the one-take-wonder style things. Uh, like when we saw Birdman several years ago, and you get the one-take shot sure. appearance. This as well. Again, coming into this absolutely cold when we first saw it in theaters. I mean, we all had a chance mm-hmm. to see it as critics back in December. I Mid- saw it in November. Yeah, okay. And even, yeah. I went in, com- like I said, completely cold. Sure. No clue. Yeah, I guess I must have seen it in November, too. November. Yeah, you were there. Um, you were there with me at yeah. that one. So w- what I'm remembering from it specifically was I didn't even know that it was supposed to be a one-take wonder, and I didn't even really, <laughs> I didn't even realize that until maybe about 15 minutes in when I thought to myself, I don't think I've seen a cut. <laughs> Wait a minute. Oh, we're just meandering. I get it. Yeah. But What's here's, fun? Here's the funny yeah, thing ahead. about that, though, is, is, and I've talked with a number of folks who, once they know that is the gimmick... They're then sitting there with the rest of the film trying to find yeah. the edit. And, I mean, there's one obvious point where you yes. go, okay, of and course, there's an edit there. Yeah. 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 But 
did that? Ha- Let's did just that- say the movie doesn't technically take place in real time, right? But does it does it strike <laughs> you? I mean, does that sort of argument ring with you as well? Did you start kind of looking for places where they might have made a cut? I did it the second and third times I watched it at home when we got yeah. the screener. I mean, I was I I mean, yeah. I'm human. It's like you. Like anybody else, you want to try to figure out where the magic is. You sure. want, you want to, you know, it's like you go watch David Copperfield. You want to know how he does the trick. Yeah. Um. And there, you, you but can't it, help but watch it the second or third time and be like, yeah. okay, where, where, where are they doing this? Um. Speaking as for me, speaking as I mean, a magician, seeing, though, people really don't want to know how the trick. No, they works. don't really do, but <laughs> they mean, still look they for still it. They still look exactly. That's what, but that's yeah. it. I don't yeah. really want to know where yeah. they edited. Yeah. But, but I still look for it. Right. I mean, because right. I want yeah. to see if I'm as smart as I think I am. Yeah. Um. But for me, like. The great thing about that movie, the first time watching it in the theater, is that it is a purely immersive experience. Yes. For me, I didn't care about any of that during my first watch, even though I knew going in it was supposed to look like a one-shot film. Yeah. It, I was dropped into this world that Mendez so you know beautifully crafted immediately. And so I didn't care about that. I just watched the movie. I do... On a certain, to a certain extent, understand how this way of making a movie can take some viewers out of it. Mm-hmm. That they feel too disa- disattached yeah. to the emotional contact of what is going on. I felt the opposite. I felt emotionally involved. I felt like I was on the ground with Dean Charles Chapman and George McKay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just going to say, George McKay would have been in my top five for actors this year. <laughs> I think he should have been nominated, but that's just me. Um, but that's how the film can work yeah. in more than one way. Right. You, mm-hmm. you can accept it as technical wizardry, technical genius, or you can get involved in the emotions of these extraordinarily talented actors from but start the, to but finish. The, but I do get how some people this just does not work for them, and they do not feel emotionally attached, and they just look at it as a gimmick. Hmm. I don't agree, but I understand where they're coming from, and so I do get that complaint. Huh. I don't personally. Yeah, no, I, mean, I, I get don't. it. I get it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. if your mind just doesn't want to work that way and, yeah. and you just look at it as the gimmick yeah. and you don't get emotionally attached to the two characters, yeah. then the movie isn't going to work for you because it is just about getting emotionally attached to this journey and hmm. to these characters and being involved with them as they race against time to save the soldiers. Yeah. Although I, w- I still would also argue, though, that there's so much else going on in the film that I agree. I could I could easily dismiss that argument. Just to go, no, I, I well, look agree. Look at all the other but stuff they This is certainly off. one where it would be interesting to have a yeah. counterpoint because I do think a lot of the counterpoints are interesting and valid and worth discussing. Hmm. Um and seeing if you can change one another's minds. Yeah. Well, I'm a theater on this. Sure. Steve? I'm definitely a theater. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Absolutely. I'm a theater as well. I mean, like yeah. I said, it was it just missed my top 10, and I had sure. it at 11th. So, sure. I mean... And I will further admit, I can think of a lot of films I've seen yeah. to this point in my life that are all about the technical wizardry, sure. all about the grammar of filmmaking. With weak storylines, I still love them because yeah. I love grammarians of the cinema if they know what they're doing and sure. if it... You know, if it in any way serves their narrative. Well, yeah. I mean, last year at Marion Bad, does it even have a plot? I mean, does it have a plot? I have no idea. Because I've watched it like seven times and I have no idea. But it's all about the grammar of film. Mm-hmm. And it's considered one of the greatest motion pictures ever made. Huh. Okay. Okay. So, here's a film <laughs> I'm not quite sure is going to qualify in the Oscar category going forward into 2020. No, but uh, it might just be the best of the series. There's a strong possibility that we're talking bad boys for life. And what exactly is going on here? Of course, it's uh, 
Well, it's Will Smith and Martin Lawrence returning once again. Buddy cop, buddies and cops. Let me just separate those two out because <laughs> this buddy cop film of Mike Lowry and Marcus Burnett find themselves, basically they're questioning retirement. At least Marcus is questioning retirement. Meanwhile, an old grudge from Mike's past returns with deadly intent, basically on well, forcing the hand of fate and uh, not being ones to roll over easily. Mike and Marcus, of course, decide to take the ride and go on one last ride to uh, finish what's been started, what was this, 20, 25 years? 25 years, 1995. Yeah, 25 years. The movie that, it's yeah. the movie that made Martin Lawrence, that, that made Martin Lawrence a bankable movie star. It's the movie that made Will Smith an international superstar. Sure. And it's the movie that gave director Michael Bay his career, for better and for worse. Okay, right. Michael Bay, who by the way, does get a cameo appearance in this film. Uh, keep a close eye on the wedding DJ, if you will. Sure. And uh, there you go. Directed by Adil and Bilal, this is a setup we're already very familiar with, intimately familiar with. We've got uh, this franchise totally superfluous, totally gratuitous. It's all necessary boxes yeah, but checked. Here's what's crazy about this one. Mm-hmm. Is this the first one that actually treats its characters seriously and is mature and has actually about their relationship. I mean, in some ways, it's... And again, this is kind of a low 80-ish, 90-ish bar, mm-hmm. but it's the lethal weapon, too, of the series in that it is about right. Martin Lawrence and Will Smith's relationship and how much they actually love one another yeah. and and what their friendship over this 25 years as, as partners and detectives and best friends has entailed. Yep. And it gives the movie an extra layer of depth and, and resonance mm-hmm. that after the homophobic, crazy, sexist, misogynistic nastiness of Bad Boys 2 yeah. took me by complete surprise. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. The movie is also, it owes a great deal of... Of gratitude to the Fast and the Furious series, sure does. They have, they are really working hard to sort of Fast and Furious this franchise, especially that first whole and opening the, the sequence. Fact that, yeah. The fact that they have already announced that um, Bad Boys Four is in pre-production is no shock to me because they have introduced their multicultural, hip, cool. Um, younger cast who will work perfectly with Will Smith going forward, whether Lawrence returns or not. Yeah. Um, Plenty of slow mo. There's plenty, plenty of, of stuff here that, yep. that could be interesting and work. Yeah, but I, you know, and yet I liked this movie a great deal. I mean, I, I have a soft spot for the 1995 original. I think the 1995 uh-huh. original hasn't aged particularly well with some of its subject matter. Sure, but I mean, what movie from the past, you know, 20, 30, 40 years has as far, especially when you get to like buddy cop comedies? Sure thing. Um, but this one, it just. It just works better. And I think the action scenes are almost cleaner than what they are in a Michael Bay movie because they're coherent. I mean, there's plenty of, you know, general homage to Bay. I mean, there's a couple of the signature sweeping camera shots and, you know, some of those things going on. Yep. But Alil and Bilal don't over-edit their action. They sure don't. They They allow you to actually see what's going on. And they still have plenty of uh, helicopters exploding, which I think is a a very signature uh, sort of thing. Here's the thing I found about it. Yes, it's predictable. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's simple. Uh, I would liken this to Cheetos. Now, I happen to like Cheetos, but they're low in (laughs) nutrition, right? And uh, and so, But here's the thing about it is not every film we see has to be a balanced meal. No. It's, it's, It's okay to have a little bit of junk food in your diet every now and then. I'm not saying you can binge on this stuff. And I find this to be, this is 
the treat that you get, you, you, you know, on your cheat day if, if, you're, if you're working out. Uh, so what we're talking about here is popcorn chomping entertainment. Yeah. I mean, and that's start to finish does it. It's escapism. And for it's a, little, a strange January yeah. movie because, yeah. yes, it's popcorn. It's what mm-hmm. you're talking about. Yep. But it's good. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's good. Like, it's, it's, not, like it's like the not chocolate the, popcorn that you get at the. But it's, it's the not chocolate the popcorn kind of, you It's get. not the type of action film we usually get in January. Sure. This is a movie that we usually get in like March or yeah. April. So give us an example of like give us an example of the bad ones like well, the, the ride along uh, the two ride along movies with sure. Ice Cube and, and uh, um, uh, Kevin Hart. They're right. both terrible, and, and I'm they're thinking, both flat out terrible. I'm thinking but like those the, are January releases that made a gazillion bucks. Didn't the Expendables that nobody also? actually likes? No, the Expendable movies were summer and early but fall. Wasn't, I feel, weren't there was one no. like in January or something like that no. that was just so no. Huh. All right. Well. But Stallone's had. Jan- Don't yeah. get me wrong. Stallone has had January, early February action yeah. films that are that bad. Yeah. Um, or sometimes the ones that they think are going to be that bad and then turn out to be okay. Like you know, yeah. Rambo, Rambo Four. Right. Was I think a, I think it was a February or March release, yeah. and yes. and they were certain that that movie was going to tank with critics and be terrible and all that sort of stuff. And then it was a small minor hit that people actually liked. Sure. Like and and uh, what were the other ones like? Uh, Oh, what's the one? That, they're all from Sony Pictures, usually the ones that are like uh, based on video games. Where sure, well, know, the Resident Evil movies, Res- Underworld yeah. movies, but yeah. the Underworld movies. I mean, those normally were like February, and Resident Evil was usually like September. But yeah, they usually go into dry, you know, mm-hmm. slower areas, and and those those are very similar in some ways, and that yeah. they are. The under this is more like the underworld films than it is the Resident Evil film. The Resident Evil films varied in quality. The I like, underworld I like films how are... you're separating crap versus other crap. It's well, like, I mean, the they're underworld, both the, crap. But, but no, I mean the underworld films are very entertaining for what they are. But again, they're they're basically yeah. If Bad Boys for Life is the chocolate popcorn from the Cinerama, yeah. Then this is like the Frozen Junior. Mi- I mean, Underworld's like Frozen Junior Mints. Okay. I mean, it's. Yeah. It's that's a, it's still a hard sell on me at this well, point when they're in Resident Evil or or what was the other one. Uh, no, Underworld. Underworld. Underworld, no. Underworld 8, 9? What are they <laughs> on to? The, they're, uh, they, they're actually not that far into it. Five or six? They're five. Yeah. But, Still five. But, five? Yeah. yeah. This There's... poses a question for you, though, Adam. <sighs> okay. Now that we've learned this month what you call the yellowish residue left on your fingers Ooh, when yes. you eat those yeah. Cheetos, yeah. Cheetle? Yeah. What is the psychic Cheetle you experience then after seeing Bad Boys for Ooh. Life? Well, uh, that that's... Um, Actually, just a little bit of satisfaction, I think, that actually uh, walk away from it. I think there's clearly more left in the tank, as we're evidenced in the rolling credits there. Uh, we get this this oh, post-credit God. scene, right? And you're like, well, of course there had to be a setup to more. So we, we do get that, and that's just that's not to be a spoiler. But we do know that there will be more in the future. So wait, instead of, you know, like the Fast and the Furious franchise, mm-hmm. it has its justice for Han because of Jason Statham's character. Right. Do we have to have, like, justice for Captain Howard now going forward? I wonder about this. Now that's right? a spoiler altogether. I didn't say anything. I did not. I mean, it's it's. I'm just, you know, you just to, saying. I'm just saying. I happen to like the captain. I so, love the captain. Yeah. And I, hey, you know what? Credit to to this Bad Boys franchise for basically talking Joe Pantaleone, Pant, Joey Pants. <laughs> Goodness sure. gracious. Yeah. Joey Pants basically out of retirement and Martin Lawrence out, out of, of re- more or less semi retirement yeah. to come back and do this film. And they're both yeah. like, hey, look, it's a monster hit. <laughs> yeah. So, Sarah, where are you coming in on this? Uh, shocking. I mean, it's a rental, except that it's a theater. Yeah. I mean, it's a rental movie that I want people to see in the theater. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. liked it. Yeah. 
I would I, I would kind of I'm siding with that too. So I'm putting it in the rental category because I got to pick one or the other. Uh-huh. But if you had to, if you, it's a rental quality that I want people to see in the theater. So you're so saying, I'm saying theater. So you're saying theater. Okay. Well, I'm staying rental. I'm sticking I mean, with rental. It's a matinee. Yeah. Don't go. Don't pay fifteen yeah, not, twenty not, bucks. Not full dollar. Not full no. dollar. Yeah. Not at all. And uh, Steve, did Come you on. catch up with this one at all? No. no. Okay. Yeah. So you you took the the other pill. The, and the, the return of pill. Mark Mancina's killer bad boys theme. Thank you. Yeah. Love that at the back. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed the fact that you were rocking out to that during the whole. I film. was like, rocking out to that first time the whole it, movie. First time it makes its appearance back in the theater, and Sarah got it. I got really excited. In, in, I did. I think it's a great theme. <laughs> it is. Uh, let us talk about, about this another film, movie? though. This week's film altogether. The Gentleman. You mean Michael Ritchie's? Uh, mean, Michael no, no. Ritchie's. Whoa, whoa. Well, Michael Ritchie's dead. Sorry. Uh, how about? <laughs> Speaking of resurrecting how about a career, Guy Ritchie. I know, right? <laughs> Although I bet you Michael Ritchie and Guy Ritchie were actually very good friends. I mean, hmm. I think they would have been. Don't you think? I mean, like they, to they, imagine so. Anyway, I mean, because yes. they they, they kind of made some similar kind of films sometimes. Occasionally, yeah. So there's a slight overlap. There's so little, Guy Ritchie, but Guy Ritchie is back. Who just made Aladdin into a billion dollar hit earlier this summer. But he's back with a movie very much in the vein of his two most famous early films, Lock, Snatch and Lock, Snock, yeah. Lock, just, Lock, Lock Stock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. And then, wow. he, he, well, and let's put well, them Snatch, in order. Yes, yeah, Snatch let's was Let's put second. them in order because Lock Stock was first, yes. followed by Snatch. You are correct. Eventually he came up with Rock and Roll Which came a few years after. And now this. Although, I mean, you want to get technical, then you should probably throw The Man from Uncle in there, too, because it kind of feeds into his old style and also feeds into his new style. And don't but neglect, we should overlook um, it anyway. But don't, but don't no, know, because no, it's no, brilliant. No, no, it's a great film. Because <laughs> it's but his best film. But, but also don't neglect the fact that he was also at, this, at the helm sure. of uh, Sherlock Holmes there sure, for which, a while. So, Well, and he will be again. There's R- a third Richie, one coming. Richie is not just all testosterone. No. Uh, well, it's a lot CD of testosterone. Under, well, testosterone, CD underworld of London, no. and mobsters, gangsters, bad guys, I mean, wise guys. The least guys. amount of testosterone he's had is probably on Aladdin. Sure. Yes. Which still had Will Smith as a blue genie. It was okay. <laughs> so I'm tell just us, saying that's a lot of testosterone right so there. So tell us about The Gentleman. <laughs> but The Gentleman, um, you know, it's it's a really fun, silly little film and it basically revolves around American expat, London-based mobster Mickey Pearson, played by Matthew McConaughey. And he's got Scottish roots. He does. Yeah. But he is worth hundreds of millions of pounds. I mean, of uh, euros. And no, pounds. Pounds. Did it's, they say it's, pounds? It's the UK. Yeah. I could never yeah. keep track because they kept talking about dollars and pounds and, and euros. 400 and, million to be precise. Well, no, that's yeah. what he yeah. wants. That's what he wants yeah. for his business. But his business is worth hundreds. Yeah. Um, but he is a very famous drug lord who is also a gentleman mm-hmm. and he wants to sell his business so he can go off and retire in the sunset with his wife, mm-hmm. um, played by the very, 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 very dynamic Michelle Dockery, who I wish had more to do. The Cockney Cleopatra yes. herself. I love it. There you go. <laughs> Lady Mary, you've gone wrong. Hello, love. <laughs> the whole movie is basically about all of the various parties that either want to buy his business mm-hmm. or stop the deal from happening so they can basically take his business. Mm-hmm. And this is all told to us via an unreliable narrator. We'll just go with that, played by Hugh Grant. He's an aspiring filmmaker, <laughs> scriptwriter, and he happens to be a private investigator. Exactly. And he is the one that is going to tell us this story because he's going to he's going to let 
um, Charlie's right hand man Ray, mm-hmm. played by uh, Charlie Hunan. Yeah, you mean you mean uh, Mickey's right hand man? That's why I said yeah. Mickey's right hand. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, but, and Charlie should only be allowed to act in his actual British accent, I think, because he's just so much more beguiling. Um, <laughs> I, you know. There's a lot going on in this film. There and there's is. a huge cast, and there are a lot of different players that are trying to to, to take over Mickey's business. Mm-hmm. And you don't really want to talk about them all because you want to be surprised by them all. Sure. I mean, when Colin Farrell shows up, you want to be surprised by who he's playing and what he's doing and what character he is yep. because he's a hoot and he's hysterical and, and he's we, fun to watch. And let's, so let's not spoil it. No, for no, folks. I'm not going to say. Let's I'm not say, say but, we know he's in it. He's yeah, in the poster. Good exactly. enough. And it's okay. like Henry Golding. Same thing. It's like he's in it. You know he's in it. Mm-hmm. He plays an important character. His introduction is one of the moments in the film that the entire theater went silent because they could, it was like everybody was in sudden shock wondering if the movie just was as racist as they thought it was. Yeah. <laughs> and then it you has and, its moments. And then you get the gag and what they are actually <laughs> yes. leading you to. Mm-hmm. Um, everything in the movie is a setup. Everything yeah. in the movie is a put on. Everything in the movie is a big, huge parlor game. The question is, who is playing who, and what is real and what isn't? Exactly. And having talked about Artifice in 1917, here we have Guy Ritchie, I believe, writing his script for the first time. In a while, yeah. Well, yeah. The whole movie is a conceit. And every time Fletcher, the private eye played by Hugh Grant, gives us a different strand, a different fold of the story, folds back the narrative. I mean, it's basically, it's a flashback. It's like a film Mm -hmm. noir with a lot of comedy attached to it. Yeah. Okay, oh, he set us up for a smash cut. Oh, now he set us up for a slow-mo. Now he set us up for overlapping dialogue. Now we've got a voiceover that becomes dialogue that becomes a voiceover again. So (laughs) there's all this conceit of language and rhythm and technical dimension to this film that works so well. I mean, it's a film, I I have to say, I enjoyed it immensely. Yeah. But I would say, for a film that's really pretty superficial, that has a certain amount of tokenism to it, that's that's not deep, that's not profound, that's not even particularly novel by Guy Ritchie standards. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you could say that having seen Lock Stock, you've seen most of what you're going to get here. But it's done so deftly with this terrific cast yeah. that you're just, I mean, I laughed a lot. The dialogue yeah. is genuinely yeah. funny. No, yeah. I mean, it, it's the thing, it reminded me actually a lot of Ryan Johnson's Knives Out and how yes. clever it is and how, how intricate it is. Yes. But Knives Out ultimately is about something. It's got teeth. This movie is a lark. Yes. Which in some ways for me does make the moments where there is commentary on sexism and misogyny and homophobia and racism. racism. Mm-hmm. I, it, it's supposed to make you uncomfortable. Yep. But I am not entirely certain that it's making me uncomfortable in the way that it means to. See, now here's the one thing I wonder about this, too, because this is not unlike all other Guy Ritchie films. Sure. Here's here's the separation. I, I looked at a lot of the dialogue. I, am, I, I hold his film Snatch with high regard. It is mm-hmm. one of my all-time favorites that I watch over and over and over. I know every line of dialogue <laughs> forward and backward. I okay. can quote wow. it to you. I know it in depth. There you go. All right. I know the voice in which Richie writes that film. Mm-hmm. I looked at this film with the same microscope as we're watching yep. it last night for the first time, and I'm thinking to myself going, a lot of this dialogue is interchangeable. Yep. And a lot of the dialogue that he has written with all of his films is now interchangeable because they all exist in that same mobster world where... I, I 
I want to hesitate before we say it's a racist film or sure. it's, a, it's a sexist film or it's a misogynistic film because, yes, he wrote these words on the paper. I do believe there are people in foggy old London town who do have this mindset and do operate this way. And as offensive as they are, which they are offensive because he he delves into a couple. There's a couple of key terms that he keeps no, no. hitting hard no, and, in this film. But I mean, I guess the question is, is yeah. just because a movie consistently comments mm-hmm. on its own racism, homophobia, sexism and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And is 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 purposely pointing it out. I mean, I brought up the Henry Golding introduction. The movie does that on purpose. Yeah. I mean, it wants everybody in the theater to go dead silent and ask themselves, did we just hear what we thought we heard? Yeah. So that when Hugh Grant comes back in with the very next sentence, you hear it. Mm-hmm. And you are everybody I mean, there is that silence so you can hear what is happening and go Oh, that's who these characters are, and that's what we're saying here, and that's who this person is, and that's what he does. Everything actually does lead mm-hmm. to developing characters. Yeah. The question is, does that still excuse it? And mm-hmm. as you go through the story, you're constantly yes. asking yourself, after the first, shall we say, of many reveals from yeah. Fletcher and and us as an audience, thanks to the writing, the editing, the juxtaposition of, mm-hmm. of little scenelets by Guy Ritchie, you're asking yourself all along, wait a minute. Did that really happen? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's not in his character. Okay, I'm not so offended yeah. now. Oh, but wait a minute. She's still being treated as a token, but I guess it's not as offensive as I thought it was because the story just folded itself back again. Yeah. yeah. And so that's why I say it's a conceit. It's a, I agree with yeah. Adam. No, it's a classic exactly. writer's conceit here. Yeah. I will say that the, I agree with both of you, and I, I think, Steve, you've put it perfectly as to how I feel about 95% of everything that happens and my responses to it as it was going on. Uh-huh. Except for there is one moment of almost sexual violence at the end of the movie that I do not think works. It changes a character who has been strong and interesting into nothing more than a prop. And it also becomes the only racist moment in the movie that doesn't have the counterpoint. Hmm. Um, And I don't necessarily think that moment in and of itself worked as intended. Yeah. And I don't want to give it away because it's it's closer towards the end, mm-hmm. but that did not sit well with me. I will say that Richie immediately brings it home after that. Sure does. Um, I think the last seven or eight minutes after that moment are exceptional. No, yeah. no spoilers here. I agree yeah. with you. No spoilers here, Sarah, but I will say that both characters in the scene you're referencing yeah. are out of character there. Exactly. Both of them. That's why it's wrong and tonally wrong for yeah. the film. Tonally with an Although M. it should be said that, as we've been talking about, we've been dealing with a movie from an unreliable narr- narrator for the entire film. That's when we are out of that. Yeah. That's when we're actually watching things. I think there's also an interesting point that, uh, that I saw on IMDb earlier today that there was an interview that was going on with Richie. Mm-hmm. Basically, I think it was Matthew McConaughey and, and uh, it may have been Charlie, uh, who were discussing the fact that so much of the film is actually improv or Richie kept on throwing them curveballs during the film. Of, actually, oh, the Hugh Grant had to have yeah. improv so much of So I, I think that also lends to some of this as well. Yeah. Um, I am a theater on this one, uh, purely out of the fact that it is the adrenaline ride that I was not anticipating. I was anticipating because it's Guy Ritchie. I wanted it. Uh, but I still had a hell of a lot of fun with it. So I say go for it. This is one to see this weekend because I don't think there's a heck of a lot else out there right now. <laughs> well, there's the Oscar films. Well, yeah, but yeah, yeah. But no, um, we're already up to speed on those. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, you could always go see Doolittle. No, pass. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, you know what? In 2017, I was, well, 2018, I was all on the Hugh Grant Deserves an Oscar nomination for Paddington 2 train. Mm-hmm. 
I have a feeling in 2020 I'm going to be on for the entire year. I'm going to be on Hugh Grant deserves an Oscar nomination for The Gentleman Train. Wow. For a January release? For a January, well, well December release in London. Well, but, technically, you know. yes. Okay. Um, okay. But yes, theater. With all my reservations and the things that I just said that made me uncomfortable, it's a theater. Theater from Sarah. Steve? And despite the fact that I don't have your Guy Ritchie microscope, Adam, ah. I'm still going to go with theater. All this. right. All right. <laughs> Well, uh, I wish I had a, a very Cockney thing to say that would be uh, rhymey and chimey that would go, oh, there it is. It's rhymey and chimey. By the, by the way, yeah. there's a use of a certain word that is very much rooted in specifically English culture. Yeah. I think this screenplay may set a new record for its use oh. in, in, in the dialogue, in the screenplay to this picture. We'll leave it at that. Right. Yeah. I think uh, this is, if we're thinking the same word, it's something that Bricktop happens to say in uh, the film Snatch and uh, describing himself. Uh, as uh, what nemesis means, and I'll leave it at that. Yes. Um, wow. So that's, see, there's, there's again, the no, microscope of yeah, which I good. look. That's good. So. Uh, Did a good job. Feelings about award season. Sarah, when well, I, I first. Okay, I don't care. No, yeah. hold, hold on. Okay, hold on. Okay. I have to, there's a setup yeah, here. Good, okay. When I first met you a gajillion years sure. ago, uh, it was at a screening of, of uh, uh, Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette. Oh yeah, okay. That was that was when we first met, and I walked into the theater, and at the time, underrated movie, uh, underrated. <laughs> Sorry, sort of. I was not a huge fan, but needless to Watch say, what, what I not going to happen. <laughs> but what I can tell you is that you were at the time uh-huh. holding court, discussing Oscar potentials and this and that, and what sure. had just happened and what yeah. just transpired. So, um, Sarah, when it comes to Oscars, yeah, I look to you and I kind of look at it and I go, "This is this is almost like a Super Bowl." For you, in sure. some regards, because in some ways, you you know, all year long, you're watching all the puzzles, all the players, all the things coming together. This, that, da, 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 da. Okay. So when it comes to stats and this, yeah, I, know. I, I want to know your take. This year in particular, we were discussing. This has been a very compact year. Yes. And earlier, before we started the show, you and I kind of started getting into this a little bit out of the fact that you're saying. Yeah, nobody cares about these other awards. It's really about this. Oh no, that's I didn't say nobody oh, cares. Hold on. I, all right, so. I say they should have no meaning. Right. Let's discuss this, shall we? <laughs> sure, <laughs> however you want to do it. Um, I will say that this year's this this year's award season has been depressing for me. And why I is mean, that? Um, only because, for as complicated and as jumbled and as you know nonsensical as some of it is, there's been basically no drama, and hmm. it. Throughout the entire process, it feels I'm not going to get mad at I don't I don't believe in the word snub. Mm-hmm. Every time people always want to say, "Oh, this person, that person, that all these people got snubbed from an Oscar," mm-hmm. I don't actually believe in that word because 98 percent of the time, the people that did get nominated for something, you know, they did exemplary work. They deserve to get nominated, and it's sure. a numbers and, game. And it's by a numbers definition. game, and I, I mean, yes, I have favorites that I rather would have gotten in there, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to call it necessarily a snub. My issue with this year in particular, but with the last few years, hmm. is that there are, because of the way that award season has now sort of compacted itself, mm-hmm. and the way that everybody sort of looks at everything, and the way that it all has become basically a numbers game, and it has become sort of you know, a competition, you get 15 to 18 films that are anointed as awards contenders. Mm-hmm. And those are the only things anybody watches. Mm -hmm. And when you start narrowing it down from voting body to voting body to voting body, that number keeps getting compressed even more. 
especially by the makeup of those bodies. And so where a film like, say, Lone Scarfia's Hustlers might be initially towards the beginning of the season considered an awards contender, by the time you get to the end of the season and you're dealing with the, you know, the voting makeup and majority of the, of the Oscar body, that film, because of what it is and because you know the type of movie that it is and who it stars, gets pushed to the bottom of their screener pile and they just don't bother watching it because they feel like they have to watch the other stuff first. Hmm. There's, and so all of these safe films sure. keep getting nominated instead of anything that, where it doesn't feel like there's any sort of diversity. And I don't mean necessarily diversity in, um, you know, African-Americans or, you know, mm-hmm. Asian, you know, I just mean diversity of film. Uh-huh. I mean, you look at the Oscars this year, it's basically 12 films that got nominated for everything. Sure. And that to me is wrong. Okay. And that should not be the way it works. Would you include Parasite as Well, I'll get to that, but I'll, but, let, but, I'll let Steve talk, but yeah. I mean I can I can I can I can talk about that, but yeah. give, let, let go ahead. I would generally agree. In fact, I would I would offer a mildly radical proposal to the Oscars, especially with this compression because it is a numbers game, there are going to be all kinds of performances and films and work that is not going to be recognized. I think we're at a point now, because many of my favorites have not been nominated this year, I agree. I look at who has been nominated and I say, virtually without exception, I have no problem with that. Yeah. I think we're at the point where, like Best Picture, we've got to do the top six categories as a maximum of ten. Hmm. I think you've got to do it with picture, director, and all four acting categories, at least for the Academy Awards, so that more deserving talent at least gets recognized in the nominating process. And there is a certain amount of overlap. Yeah. Many of the people who vote for Screen Actors Guild, more importantly, those who nominate for Screen Actors Guild, are involved in the same process for the Academy Awards. And the same prejudices and the same mindsets just carry themselves out over and over. I would quibble with you on one point, mm-hmm. Sarah. Hustlers. I think Hustlers is a classic example of a film which, personally, I consider a little overrated. But I suspect it's a film that was seen more often. Oh no! There, by there, 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 no, there are uh, there are actual Academy voters who have gone on record saying they didn't bother to watch it because it wasn't an Oscar film. Huh. Well, and, but, and that's and that's and that is and that is ludicrous because every film should potentially be an Oscar film. There are Oscar voters that have gone on record saying they didn't watch us. Not because they didn't think it would be a good movie, but because they gave Jordan Peele so many um, nominations the year before. Uh, that is just inexcusable in my book. It's well, like it's no. like you're just saying, okay, you're 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 just not watching this primarily female, minority-driven dramatic comedy about strippers because oh that's just not an Oscar material film. When in reality, it's the Big Short. It's the Big Short with strippers. And you just gave the big short eight Oscar nom- nominations three, four years ago. Right. If you tack Martin Scorsese's name on that movie, everybody in the Academy watches it. Uh, yeah. yeah. And then, yes, but they, they, they probably they would. They also and end that, up scratching that, their head going, why did I just spend three and a half no, hours that, doing this? But, well, that wouldn't, be, it wouldn't have been three and a half hours long. <laughs> but, that's, but I mean, that's what's unfortunate is yeah. you have to deal with those kind of biases. Um, and and the other thing to remember is, you know, with the Academy, each branch nominates each branch. Yes. And so you do see a little bit more diversity in some of how, how people watch in some of the branches. But in other, like the director's branch, I mean, yeah, I don't think Todd Phillips should have been nominated, but I get why he was. Mm-hmm. But the thing, my problem with the director's branch is it is still primarily 
80% white and 80% male and 80% over the age of 60. So, of course, they're not watching the films that, you know, of course, they're not watching The Farewell. Of course, they're not watching. And that's watching why we have an intersection this year in particular of so many talented women directors who made so many fine films. Who did not get nominated None anywhere. None of them got yeah. nominated and anywhere. I don't, and again, it's like, yeah, Martin Scorsese made a great movie with, with The Irishman. He deserves to be nominated. I'll tell you what, if Martin Scorsese hadn't been nominated and Lulu Wang or Greta Gerwig had, mm-hmm. you know who would have been the most excited person for Lulu Wang or Greta Gerwig? Martin Scorsese. Scorsese would have been sitting at home going, yes, that's fantastic. I'm okay with not getting nominated because they're there. And I think that's actually a sign of a good leader. Is a good leader doesn't try and hold people down. A good leader tries yeah. to like get others to aspire to become leaders themselves no. or at least pave the and way so that others can do it. And it's nothing against Scorsese. Yeah. I, th- I, again, I think The Irishman's a great film. I have no yeah. problem with him getting nominated. But he would have been perfectly okay if you would have passed over him this year for mm-hmm. one of yeah. these talented women that you're talking I about. I think it's interesting in who's actually been cleaning up the awards because I don't recall The Irishman actually won anything. winning anything even though it's been nominated yeah. all over the place. No. And no. De Niro... Yeah. has not been nominated. For one of his best performances yes, ever. For, right. for an excellent performance, a yeah. nominating performance, arguably his best in years. Yeah. No, I mean, in, in answer to your question about Parasite, yeah. so every year the, there is like one outlier film mm-hmm. that the Academy feels like they have to watch. Yeah. A couple of years ago it was Get Out. A few years before that it was Mad Max Fury Road. There is always that one film that just is this avalanche movie that wins everything that normally mm-hmm. your academy membership would not necessarily take a look at uh, on the whole but because everybody else and their sister has been talking about it it slowly makes its way higher and higher and higher and higher sure. into the stack the thing that has worked well with parasite is that the actors love it mm-hmm. um, even though it didn't get any acting nominations from sag <laughs> but still became the first film not in the english language to win the ensemble sag, which, which was yeah. terrific. I mean, that's fantastic. Um, but the actors branch loved it so much that I have a feeling that the other guilds sort of felt that they needed to put it high in their stack as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's one of those things as if enough people actually do watch it, like Mad Max Fury Road or Get Out, if enough people actually do watch it, then they're going to actually go, oh, yeah, this is a great movie. Yeah, It's getting people to watch it. The problem this year, Dolomite was my name. Nobody watched it because they watched the other Netflix yeah. movies. You know, we talked about Hustlers. Nobody watched it because they didn't think it was Oscar-y. Um, us, we gave Jordan Peele awards the year before, you know, the year before. So why do we need to watch this horror film? That happens with so many of these other outlying contenders that could have had a shot mm-hmm. had anybody just watched them. So here's the one defense that I have for the, I'll call it the, the non-voting public which is when people have come to me and said, well, what do you think about this and what do you think about that? And isn't it all just, and I, I look at it and I go, well, in, in a way, it's all just a take because any film that gets a nomination, basically that, that equates to more money for the studios because that guarantees more eyes going to see films in theater or renting or downloading or whatever it's going to be. That, well, no, it's, it's pretty much attributed. We know that. What I have said, the only defensible action that we as non-voting public can have is where we choose to vote with our eyes. And that comes down to whether we choose to watch the Oscars on television, which basically would be lining the pockets of the advertisers behind it. So if you don't watch, they won't do it. And by where we choose to cast our vote as far as what films we go to see. And that is really ultimately what drives the whole thing. I don't know who is going to organize any uprising or actual turn of events. But really, I guess this is where I would empower viewers to 
or or people who are interested in film to dig deeper than just that list and but, therefore you know hey this year people did go see the films that are nominated i mean a lot of them yeah, yeah i mean parasites one of the best um fi- most financially successful yes. foreign language films in probably the last decade mm-hmm. uh you know joker was a billion dollar hit i mean Ford v. Ferrari, 1917, Little Women, and um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood are all going to either have made or are going to make over $100 million at the box office. Mm-hmm. Jojo Rabbit did fine for what it is. I mean, for the type of movie that it is. It's 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 the weakest of the bunch in sure, that we yeah. don't know, because we'll never know with the case of The Irishman or Marriage Story, how popular they actually are because yeah. they're on Netflix. So we have no idea in the case of those two movies. Yeah. But, I mean, I can say that you know, the Irishman spent a week at the Cinerama and sold out the Cinerama for a week. Sure. So I imagine that it must be doing okay. And Marriage Story seems to be doing well with anytime it pl- anytime it plays anywhere theatrically. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's not like this year that people didn't see these movies and they didn't vote with their eyes with these films. Right. Well, I, I would add two two notes here: one about politics and one about time compression. Sure. I do think, for example that fewer of these films, especially the ones that are not in the core, the chosen group, have not been seen as much because of the time compression. That's not to excuse it. Mm -hmm. I'm simply saying that may be a fact of life. Secondly, I too have heard the remarks about uh, Hustlers, for example. I've heard similar remarks about 1917, that it's facile, that it's superficial, that it's a one-trick pony. But there's another kind of politics at play here. And I guess we talk about this every year. I don't know how we get past it. I think one of the best performances in one of the best movies of the year, Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems. Sure. Uh, if you listen to the anecdotal comments, we seem to be getting more of them this year oh, than yeah. the past year from, from Academy voters. Why don't why didn't he get nominated? Because Supposedly it, because he was joking about it. No. He made a joke they didn't like about the Oscars, yeah. and they decided, well, you know what? We'll take care of you. And maybe exactly. down the road, if you do something else, then we'll recognize exactly. it. And it's not... That or oh, you know, it's his first good performance in a decade, so you know he just needs to wait his turn. What the hell? I would say, or in, and, yeah. and, and and you know, like with Eddie Murphy, yeah, it's probably his best work ever. But you know, we nominated him for Dreamgirls, and he hasn't really done anything in a while. So if he does it again, and it's like, okay, yeah. the dude is in his fifties now. When do you expect him to do it again? And yeah. how many chances is he going to actually get? Yeah, the vindictive side of the Academy in some regard. Yeah. And that, that is the unfortunate factor to which I think that uh, we, we still face a lot of is, and I've said it before, I'll say it again, it's a club uh, in many regards of old well, white men. Yeah. And, and again, yeah. I mean, you know, BAFTA was white this year. You look mm-hmm. at all, all of the acting nominees. I mean, Margot Robbie got nominated twice, for goodness sakes. And don't get me wrong, I think she's fine in both Bombshell and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. But that's just inexcusable when you had so many supporting performances that could have easily gone into that slot. Sure thing. Um, but I mean, like, BAFTA was so egregious this year that they voted all white actors for all of those all of those categories mm-hmm. and then went to Cynthia Irvio and said, hey, will you come sing come your sing nominated your song, song yeah. here at our awards ceremony? And she said, no, thank you very much. Yeah. But, I mean, but then you look at the Oscars. The Oscars, she is the only nominee of color mm-hmm. out of all of the actors. And I loved her and Harriet. I have no problem with her being nominated. I think it's great. She's nominated for playing Harriet Tubman. I do not think that is the look that the Academy actually wanted for their only Oscar nominee of color. Mm-hmm. 
Because it's basically feeding into the narrative that the only way that an actor, especially an actress, an actress of color can actually be nominated for an Oscar is if you are playing a slave, an ex-slave, a maid, or a hooker. Well, it's too bad Chewy Tell E4 or Idris Elba didn't have a hit no. <laughs> this year. No, I'm just saying. It's a, it, it, and the thing is, it's like as great as Cynthia Irvio yeah. is, in my opinion, and Harry, it's not like they didn't yeah. have other options. Lupita Nyong'o is playing a middle class yeah. mother yeah. in Us. Yeah. That would have said that. That would have spoke volumes. Yeah. Nominating her. For, I mean, again, yeah. it's a horror movie. Well, and it's but, crazy and, and all and of that. Of, yeah. But and I'm not disagreeing with you. The type of role just would to, have been a much less black eye for the Oscars. Just to point out, I'm I'm joking, obviously, about the Idris Elba no, because this is the that was he was he was the the winner of so many yes. SAG awards. Yeah, then yeah. after that, um, what I think is interesting from that specifically also is yes, uh, again, look. I think it was interesting to look at the Seattle film critics. Yeah. And look where we came in. I, I, I'm going to toot our horn for a second here, folks. We actually, I think we had a very diverse group. We had a very yeah. interesting uh, across-the-board nomination process. I'm going to say, I mean, and our winners were not necessarily as exciting. I mean, they were just as, in some ways, as boring as anybody we else's. Yeah, we weren't the, too but far out. the nominations out. were incredible yeah. this year, mm-hmm. and I, I wish that we could see that from more voting bodies. By the way, how extraordinary is it that you have an organization like BAFTA? Yeah. Mm-hmm of some stature, whose own nominating committee chairman says it's infuriating the list of nominees they gave us this year because there is no diversity. And by the way, Sarah, you and I should be cheering about one aspect of the Oscars today because we both talked about this film during one of my appearances (laughs) a few months ago, Uh, our friend Antonio Banderas. I am ecstatic. In Pain and Glory. That's not exactly mainstream by American standards, but it's a terrific performance in a wonderful film, pro- probably the best film by Almodovar in a decade or yeah. more. Yeah, no, I mean, and, it's in uh, my top 50. Very of gratifying to decade. see. Oh. No, I mean, and I'm totally cool with it. But again, it's like, the thing with Banderas is he is beloved by the actors. Yeah. It's his first significant role in a long time, and it's a perfect opportunity for them to nominate him. So he kind of got that slot. And don't get me wrong, it's my favorite performance of the five. I wish he would win. Hmm. But... I mean, that you can, again, you can just go, you can figure out stats or numbers or whatever you want to use to go, well, this is why he got the nomination. Okay. Um, but uh, yes, you and I are on the same page. He deserves it. It's a great movie. Putting a pin in it. Here we go. <laughs> Let's bring this count yeah. to the barn, shall we? Uh, reviewing what we've already talked about tonight. Bad Boys for Life, getting a theater, getting a, re- a rental recommendation. The Gentleman, getting three strong theater recommendations from the Squabblers, and 1917, getting three strong theater recommendations from the Squabblers. Sarah, any other projects that you're working on at this point? So I am in the middle of a uh, five-week endeavor to chronicle my top 50, 2010 through 2019. We just had part two drop the other day, and so starting next week, we will have... Numbers 30 through 21. And we can catch that at moviefreak.com. Exactly. And it's there's definitely some surprises there. And there, I'm sure that there's going to be some stuff that I've left off that are just going to infuriate some people. Ah, <laughs> yeah. And Steve, how about yourself? It's about it's about Noir City with our friend Eddie, Eddie Muller. Yeah. Coming soon to SIF. Uh, going to be doing an interview and some feature material with him, perhaps summarizing our personal history of 10 years of interviews uh-huh. that he has come to town. <laughs> Looking forward to that. So I promise we'll both be as cynical as possible. Ah, it's an well, international lineup this year, too. Yes, it's really cool. I'd love to see that from Argentina. You know, it's you awesome. may not recall that about three, four years ago when we missed Noir City one year for sure, various yeah. logistical reasons, he made a special guest appearance at SIF the Mothership in the spring, 
and brought with him an Argentinian noir, which was sensational. Yes. I'm glad to see there are others in vaults on farms and <laughs> elsewhere that are still being discovered. Very good. Well, the czar of noir shall entertain. No, uh, no, no question about it. This has been Cinema Squabble, episode 96. Adam Gerke, Sarah Michelle Fetter, Steve Reeder, our producer, Sprints Arbogast, and oh, one other reminder. If you happen to have a smart speaker, you can always just say, hey, <laughs> play Cinema Squabble. And guess what? It'll play the latest episode. So always handy to keep that in mind. So thanks for joining us.